Remember our old flat? The one with two giant windows, one looking out into the prison on one end and the other looking out into the courtyard on the other? Well, through these windows, we bore witness to a lot of different things throughout our quarantine. But there was one particular thing, or one particular man, that stood out. In peak lockdown, when it seemed like there was no escape from COVID, we saw different local initiatives arise. People going out to buy groceries or medicines for the elderly and the ones most at risk. One fateful day, this man walked into our courtyard, carrying a bag of groceries. And whereas most of us wore sweatpants and t-shirts around this time, he was wearing a full-piece suit, with a handkerchief hanging from his pocket square and a fedora hat sitting atop his head. And everything he wore, from his pointy shoes and socks to his shirt, suit, and his hat, was all bright pink. Like magic, we watched what felt like a superhero, draped in salmon-coloured formal wear, bring this bag to the front step of one of our neighbours, ring the bell, and take a step back to ensure he was six feet away. The old lady living in the house greeted him with a smile and a few kind words, picked up the bag and withdrew back into her home. And off he went, beyond the periphery of our giant all-seeing eye window. We saw him again a few days later, doing the same thing, bringing something to one of our neighbours, but this time he was fully in yellow. Deep bumblebee blonde butter under the honey-coloured sun, dandelion yellow. In our lockdown craze, we convinced ourselves that he was our neighbourhood superhero out to save all of us with his monochromatic costume and a hat for a cape, one errand at a time. If 2020 is a year plagued by villainous-induced disorder, we thought, then maybe this pink and yellow man was here to save the day. Brought to you by Beaver Sound. I'm Luish. And I'm Judah. And you're listening to We Know the End. Chapter 5 Last week, we remembered some of the stories that accompanied us through this apocalyptic and turbulent year that helped us connect and escape. This week, we take a step back from the adventures on our TV screens and look at the one we were living. If 2020 is to be a story, then like all stories, it's not complete without some eccentric characters, most notably our heroes and villains. Throughout this year, who were the ones who embodied these roles, who kindled the light, and who stopped at nothing to try to blow it out? Often, villains are identifiable by distinct characteristics. Whether it's a creepy laugh or a long pointy nose, these features help memorialise these characters in the deep pits of our worst nightmares. For many of us, if you go looking for one of the monsters living in this pit, you'll probably find scarring images of an orange-skinned man with an abandoned nest of blonde strands of hair on his head, paired with a statement red hat. 
like, dude, I remember when Trump was on The Apprentice. Like, do, do you know what I mean? Like, imagine trying to map that trajectory in a history book and not sounding like you're completely insane or like it's like science fiction. I remember Trump being in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Remember Trump saying, grab her by the pussy? Like, how will history books teach little Literally. about this? Oh, God. I forgot. Completely forgot about grab her by the pussy. Jesus yeah. Christ. This particular villain holds one of the most powerful positions in the world. And in the wake of a health crisis, climate change, civil unrest in response to police brutality, his wickedness seemed to take on new heights. But I don't know. It's, it's weird because I kind of find Trump, I hate how much I find Trump funny. Like, I, I, to me, he's just like a character in like some outlandish character in a movie. And he's just crazy. This guy, just the hair, his whole appearance, the way he talks. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, Trump's just like a disgrace. Like, <laughs> he's just terrible. He was impeached. And then was there was like a, a um, all this hullabaloo about him being like whatever you know and didn't change anything. I remember initially I was like, okay, he's done for, you know, like we're free, you know, <laughs> the era of, of Trumpism is over. But then, <laughs> surprise. The impeachment was like, well, it wasn't for Russian collusion, was it? It was for like the Ukrainian thing. I mean, like you can't do that and be president, babe. Like I don't know what else to say. Like that. It's just, it's just blatant corruption, like... <laughs> I just mean, like, the flagrant d- denial of science or ignorance of science, particularly with that classic press conference where he was like, can we inject some, like, hand sanitizer into people to, like, get rid of the virus? Can we do that? And you just see that poor medical advisor off to, you know, like, stage right. <laughs> it was just like, I do not want to be here with this clown. And I was just like, wow. Even with the whole world on fire, you're still up to your antics. Like, even Satan rests. God rested on the seventh day. You should too, okay? Like, no one no one deserves, like, Trump. Like, no one deserves that. Like, that, it's just disgraceful. And this year, we saw this great monster finally face some kind of defeat. Out of the depths of electoral darkness emerged a force strong enough to end Trump's tyranny, or at least cripple it. Hardly knights in shining armor, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris emerged from the ashes securing 306 electoral college votes and over a 7 million vote lead in an election with the highest turnout in over 100 years. If Trump is our villain, then tragically, Joe Biden seems to be all we can hope for some sort of makeshift hero. Am I happy that Trump is out of office? Yes, obviously. (laughs) I'm, you know, I'm really, really happy about that. Um, But I don't necessarily love Biden, I'm going to be honest. I see him as the lesser of two evils. Honestly, I mean, it's so sad that so much of my mental stability, or at least what's left of it, is so heavily contingent on Joe Biden, of all people, winning the election. Politics is tricky because I don't like either candidates. I think Joe Biden is a weirdo and a predator, and Trump is... Donald Trump is Donald Trump, but I feel like that's self-explanatory. I don't really have a lot of hope about Joe Biden. He doesn't excite me, but it's a relief, you know? It's a really, because like the, the fear I had at the election, like if Trump gets reelected, America's just going to completely go into like anti-democratic decline, you know? Um, Biden is a significant, a closer, a closer um, representation to the myth of American justice.
um, because on the one hand, like he will listen to reason much more than Donald Trump. I think there's a, there's an element of he seems to care about U.S. citizens a lot more than Trump does. But you know, there are some like really worrying things about Joe Biden, and I think that that's the conclusion that most um, that most people came to that was that just yeah, he's not perfect, but at least he's not Trump. With the US election playing out in front of us on live news coverage and Twitter threads, we watched for days as America counted up its votes. While the sensible thing would have been to check in and out every so often, refreshing Google for updates every time a new state projected their winner, like most people did, Luis and I were much more self-destructive. For literally no reason, a group of us spent the latter half of our reading week watching the whole thing live on NBC, BBC and CNN. On various group Zooms and group chats, we exchanged our live reactions, breakdowns, frustrations for essentially over four days. Like spectators at some sort of gladiator match, the election was rendered a battleground and we found ourselves completely unable to tear our eyes away. Well, the time is 2.54 a.m. A.m. We are on the verge of insanity. I'm past it, yeah. Yeah. It's currently um, 9.53pm UK time. 8 or 9pm Eastern time. 2am. 10am. No, sorry, it's 2pm. <laughs> On day, like, 75 under the dome. And I'm literally about to throw up because I just keep getting more and more excited slash scared. I mean, I thought by 3am Texas and Florida would be called and it's 3am and it's still too close to call for both of them. It's now um, midnight. I just I fell asleep and now I've woken up. Ellie's going to sleep. Good night, Ellie. Bye, Ellie. Good night, Ellie. Good night, Ellie. Oh, God, North Carolina's back North in. Carolina oh, Jesus Christ. Painfully, I think he's going to win that. I think Trump's going to win. Um, Trump or Biden? Trump. I think it's going to be Trump. I'm now cold and thirsty and like, I feel like I've done all of this for nothing. Oh, something happened. Has something happened. I'm just still in a bit of shock. I can't believe Biden is very likely to win this election. I really had given up. What the fuck happens in Wilmington, Delaware? Activate. <laughs> I am now being fully optimistic and hopeful. Biden will win. So you will wake up at 4am to watch Joe Biden. I can't. I, I don't know what's happened in the last... I've, I've literally been on listing for for eight hours. 56 hours into... 72? 72? <laughs> this is why American politics is like the greatest show on earth, you know? It's like Disney Channel. I don't know what they're doing in Arizona, but I know for a fact it's not counting. When I got Judah's text being like, Pennsylvania! <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Texas and Florida still haven't been called. Oh my god, this... Fucking Texas. Um, sorry, excuse me. Um, what fucking meme is Sharpie Balance? How is this count still going on? Like, I thought Las Vegas was the city that never fucking sleeps. Like, what's going on? I'm getting some tea because I need some hot drink. I'm literally just playing solitaire now. Biden wins Pennsylvania. He's won. He's won. And all of this is over. It's not too early. We're going to fucking lose. He could just win. You have Coldplay playing and then Joe Biden looks up into the sky and it says Biden in fireworks. It really is always sunny in Philadelphia. I'm a fucking celebrate. I just I, I don't give a shit about the United States. They can burn to the ground. Like they're just like doomed forever. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the rambling. I did just wake up. Fuck 2020. I'm going to bed. 
I hate everything. When the dust settled, and out of the ashes emerged a victor, we found ourselves here, underwhelmed by a defeated villain that still somehow attempts to deny his defeat, and a successor that isn't anyone's idea of a savior. And although 2020 gave us the selection, it's clear that this fight is much bigger than the madness of this year. A long-standing villain that's never shied away from wrecking havoc is the democracy America attempts to cling to. Adoma, who got to vote for the first time in an American general election, tells us about her thoughts on the current state of her country's democracy. The era of Trump is not over, and that's something that I've, I've had to come to terms with in the last couple months. Um, that, like I said before, he he doesn't represent one person. He's he, he represents the history of America. He represents everything that America from its inception was designed to do. And the tenets of his belief system are inherent to many places in America, and they likely won't change in the next coming years. I think there was a time where I was like very, I felt good about Biden winning. But then there's always that underlying critique of America in general, that the Democratic and Republican Party are members of, or like, branches on the same tree. They're rooted in the settler colonial state. They are just propagators of continued structural violence and cultural violence. And no matter who wins, we're still going to be saying these same structural inequalities and the same systems of cultural violence that are inherent to American democracy. And I think that our current election and the electorate don't represent the progression to address those injustices. And, you know, I think we exist, exist in, a, in a kind of limbo. We're far from eradicating this sort of Trumpism, which is, I even hate to say Trumpism because it's Americanism. Um, it's an unfortunate but very real part of American history, American present even. But this political villainy isn't one bound to America. We've seen it permeate across the globe and over and over again when we needed the most Governments continuously let us down. I, you know, I'd spent like a whole year, like, and the year before, like, learning about all of this stuff around like political ethics, and like every day I saw the government just like violating that all the time, um, and the, the all these kind of crackdowns on democracy and, and freedom, um, the ways in which like the government in the UK and in the US and in Hong Kong were like really stripping away the rights of citizens. You know, I was saying to my friends back home, like I've never been in a situation where I've had so, I've had absolutely like no faith in the government to, you know, to help me out at all. I think everyone has kind of a bar where, that they expect from politicians, you know, and I think that that bar is, is shifting pretty, like pretty consistently. You know, a few years ago, uh, if you told me that like, Boris Johnson, like the overtly racist, overtly homophobic, overtly misogynistic um, person was, was going to be prime minister of our country. Like I would have said that's no way, <laughs> no way would, would the people of the UK let that happen. Um, but they did. And I think that it, it just goes to show like what there's a, there's a lot of people in this country that, that can excuse a lot more than, than you'd think, which is, yeah, which is, is really scary. But I think I think that Boris Johnson is a very scary man. And I think that it's the people that, that look ridiculous, like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, that we should be the most afraid of. Because I think that they're capable of a lot more than um, 
just like silly jokes and like um, being being like bumbling fools. Like, and I think I'm not really looking forward to where politics is heading. I think that everything is scary. <laughs> But heroes and villains don't just exist within politics. When the political realm has gone awry, we turn inwards, to the communities around us, to those that help us the most. This year, our caped crusaders were the ones that kept us safe, that risked their lives for hours, that faced the challenge of COVID head-on. Our key essential workers, the delivery drivers, the care and healthcare workers, the supermarket staff. In the wake of a global health emergency, their duty became our lifeline, and we saw this sacrifice recognised by many throughout the world. What struck me was that the people who are doing these frontline jobs are really the ones who are not able to work from home. They are also the ones who are probably the lower income ones. So you really start to think that, you know, traditionally you think that all the high income jobs are the really useful ones, but in this case, the ones that are lowly skilled, I guess, are the ones who are actually doing the the tangible practical stuff that we see. My brother and his girlfriend who were working throughout the entire pandemic. So my, my brother's a journalist and his partner is a police officer. And just, God, she, you know, when we, we'd catch up and everything, she would tell all these stories about just the massive rise in uh, domestic calls out, like domestic assault, domestic abuse. Um, I don't know how she does her job. She is uh, an incredible person who just, you know, go, turns up to work every day. Um, obviously, there are many, many issues with the police force, but, you know, the, the fact that she could be there for some people in some very difficult times um, and stick through it herself and keep her own mental sanity uh, is quite an amazing thing, really. My family, personally, like, we cooked for people in, working in the hospital and we, we brought them over. Like, we brought them, like, a big pot of jollof <laughs> and a couple of other like small like pastries and meat pies um, to bring over to um, the nurses and the doctors um, just to like say thank you for all the work that they're doing. Going to every single day, probably just having very little sleep and they're just doing all this because they have to. So yeah, just felt like, wow, you're doing such a superhero act. Various countries adopted daily or weekly rituals of clapping in honour of their service. Here in the UK, every Thursday evening at 8pm, people would come out of their homes or stand by the window, bringing their pots and pans and ringing in celebration for the NHS, among others. So, yes, we, we would clap on Thursdays and people would be like banging pots and pans and setting off fireworks and stuff. Um, and even uh, when I was in London, I think I was in London for the first clap as well. Uh, we live in the state, so it's like everyone screaming and yelling and it was like quite an amazing uh, experience. Um, to feel that kind of sense of camaraderie. It really started out as a genuine sign of appreciation and I just remember like the first the first day that that happened when everyone like came out onto the streets and just started like clapping and it was the first time I'd seen any of my neighbours in like weeks or however long it was. It was the first time I had seen any of my neighbours and like chatted to them a bit. I remember like when I went onto the balcony, I was clapping, I felt like tears in my eyes. Do you remember how uh, much days they were for you guys? Monday, 8pm. <laughs> so just like being on the street for that time and like seeing more people than you've seen like in a long time, I think that that was like a really like heartfelt moment for me, I guess. Clapping became the currency of our appreciation, a glimmer of hope 
in an increasingly darkening world, a chance to briefly transcend isolation in a moment of complete and untainted gratitude. Well, at least that's what it felt like at the beginning. But as time went on, it started to feel like this ritual was out of place, and what had initially felt like a moment of collective togetherness turned into something else. It's just performative. It's not me to help them, it's the government. Like, the way the government are treating, like, workers right now is horrific. Like, they're not even paying them enough, and they're making them go through all these exorbitant hours. So do you really think I'm going to stand outside my window and clap for the NHS when I know my government can actually do more than clapping? No, it's performative. It's ridiculous. became less wholesome to me, and it became more of about, uh, more of a, like, virtue signaling thing. But personally, I feel like it's just symbolic. Like, it's just an empty gesture because at the end of the day claps won't pay nhs workers rent will it it's not going to buy them <laughs> food the uh, the nhs clap every thursday um which was a bit patronizing you know after the government kind of failed to give like other job protections to, to nurses and to nhs key workers Whilst we took to our front doors, armed with whistles and pots and pans, it became glaringly obvious that this wasn't enough. As key and essential workers were forming the front lines, the government seemed to villainously watch on, with folded arms and in unforgivable silence. Both Shemi and Dylan capture the frustration of our leaders letting us down. I know a lot of staff are struggling. Like I have a friend who works um, in the NHS and she's not a nurse or anything, but because of this pandemic, she's had to learn like all the nurse stuff, what people learn, like take time to learn for three years. She learned it in three hours. The government rejected the um, pay raise for NHS workers, but they took a pay raise themselves. And they also get, they get 25 pounds a day and they get um, a discounted lunch at their like House of Commons and stuff like, do you know what I mean? Like they get, they're so privileged and they live a nice life, but they don't even want to um, help the people that are helping the country. It doesn't make sense to me. And like Sir Tom Moore, he walked, um, so he basically, he walked to raise money for NHS, right? Why, why is that the responsibility of a civilian, especially a civilian who's already served his country? That boggles my mind. Like, like, do you know what I mean? Like, but that's the country we live in, I guess. So. But I think it all took on like a really like a whole different feeling when as time went on it seemed like this the burden of sacrifice was being put on people whereas the government was really not doing anything about this at all and i mean even now you still hear the same thing about boris like talking about freedom loving britons unwilling to make the sacrifice to wear a mask as the reason we are in this situation and that's just not true and and that's become more evident as you see the disparity of where covid is now you know it's not in the wealthiest parts of the country uh it's it's in deprived areas where people live kind of up you know really close up against each other and um you know and those people they don't get any of the financial support they need they don't get any of the kind of social support they need you know the how, where's all this talk of sacrifice when it comes to these kind of things you know the i mean yeah any talk of like a national self-sacrifice thing it's like a bit of a joke to be honest A few episodes ago, we told you about Felipa, who didn't leave the house for 90 days while she quarantined with her boyfriend's family in Madrid. She tells us now about the clapping that took place in Spain every day at 8pm, and how she watched a transition from an act of kindness and community to something much more complicated. 
in Spain, there was an initiative that started with everyone every single day at 8 p.m. come out to their balconies, to their windows, and just clap for the uh, health workers. Uh, so we would clap for a minute, more or less. And then, so we would put the national anthem. And then across from the street, there was a family, and they would sing You Will Never Walk Alone, which was the Liverpool's uh, anthem. Um, and it was pretty, co like, it was very heartfelt, I would say. Like, I would get shivers the first time that I... Well, the first time and, like, a lot of the times, because... Um, The lyrics just made a lot of sense to the situation they were living in and so on. But then in Spain, um, on top of a health crisis, there was a political crisis that went on. Um, I think people were already getting fed up of um, the lockdown and of the inconsistency of the government and the government not telling them what's actually going on and lying about the number of cases, of the number of deaths. Also, the president. Uh, said that every time he heard the claps at 8 p.m., he felt it was towards him. And since he was not very liked by the <laughs> majority of the population, what happened was that this clapping turned into a political statement. So people that clapped at 8 p.m., uh, they were in favor, more or less, of the government. And the people that would whistle or would not clap or would not come out into the window were against the political party that still remains um, in government. And yeah, I guess the community spirit that there was in the beginning of the pandemic, I think it at least, um, it kind of uh, went down and drifted in like another way and actually divided more of the people. In the beginning, what seemed to be a very, exactly what our, Uh, neighbors uh, were singing well, uh, you will never walk alone kind of like drifted away into a more uh, divided and I would say bipolar uh, environment So somehow, after the intensity of this year, Times Person of the Year 2020 goes to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. In what reality were they the most relevant people this year, Judah? Listen, listen. <laughs> I really was not expecting Times to crown the most influential person as Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Like They were invisible. I'm literally reading on the BBC here. Every year, Times chooses a person, a group, an idea, or an object that, for better or for worse, has had the most impact on the events over the 12 months. Uh, <laughs> In what Mandela effect alternate universe did Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have the most impact on the events of the entire 12 months? Like, after a year as tumultuous and oversaturated as this one... You're telling me Joe Biden, Kamala Harris had the biggest impact. Like, yes, I'm not trying to downplay their influence. Like, obviously, Kamala Harris's monumental win is um, the first female vice president, black vice president, Indian mm. vice president. But like, this year was 12 months, okay? <laughs> not just that election. Like, you're telling me even Donald Trump. Like, who who were the runner-ups again? I can't remember who was. Who it was, it was the Donald shortlist. Trump. It was Donald mm. Trump, which again, like a villain, but. 
could have was to me more relevant than Joe Biden. There was healthcare workers, which I think would have been like the obvious and yeah. honestly the correct choice. And then there was the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which I think would have been it would have been really powerful. I think if they had done like something like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor as Times Person of the Year. I mean, I think it would have been more powerful to just have, like, Breonna Taylor's death recognized mm. as a murder and have those people <laughs> put away in prison. But I know that's a so personal right. opinion, apparently. <laughs> You're um, so right. But Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, that's what we end up with. I'm, and the uh, way that they just threw Kamala Harris <laughs> on the back of it, like, like, it's okay, it's fine. Like, it's Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Like, they're both super like, remember, remember that talk, th- that TikTok lady, Sarah Cooper, that did impressions of Trump? That little just oh, like yes. to me, she was more relevant than Joe Biden. She and her little TikToks were more the Leslie Jordan guy, the uh, whale shit, y'all. What are y'all doing? <laughs> like that to me had more impact than Joe Biden. The man in the three piece suit with the pink and the yellow and the green, like he was more Times Person of the Year than Joe Biden. Um, honestly, um, disappointed and surprised. Yeah, um, but thank somehow you for also. But somehow also fitting. The fitting ending we deserve. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I give up. Faced with a relentless and unprecedented threat, some of us were lucky enough to meet some local heroes of our own, or even become them. As a collective, a generous societal unit, we saw people helping those who needed it most. We saw local initiatives set up to help the most vulnerable in society, and Ellie tells us about how during quarantine her village came together. I live in a really small village, um, and it's just we have like one shop there, um, which is in walking distance. And my so my grandparents live in the same village, um, who and obviously they were like properly properly isolating, so we were doing their shopping and stuff for them. Um, and my granddad likes to do the Sudoku in like the times or something every day. Um, but he didn't want like a book of Sudoku puzzles and he didn't want to like do it online or anything like that. Like he wanted a hand delivered copy of the times, um, every morning, which like, um, unnecessary. And also it had to be in the morning. It had to be at like eight or 9am because he liked to do it in the morning. He didn't like to do it in the afternoon or the evening. He had a schedule to stick to. Um, but it forced me and my sister to like alternately um, go every day to the same local shop. Um, it does like locally produced stuff and it's like it's this tiny little like post office. It's like one room and it's like one person in and out, which meant you spend like 45 minutes in a queue. And obviously they all had like lovely initiatives going on for like volunteers to deliver stuff. And it was just nice to see people like not go to like Tesco's or Morrison's, like actively try and um, put their money towards a business that they knew would probably be struggling in these times. Um, But yeah, so that was nice. Um, Isabella tells us about the wholesome gesture set up in her building. So we did a community initiative where you, where they put letters in the lobby, like blank letters, and you could write a letter to someone random and they would just assign them randomly. So if you wrote one, you would get one. And they were just like little memos of like happiness and keep yourself motivated and just to make someone's day, make someone smile, really. And so I did one, but I didn't realize that they were assigned to random people. I thought you sent them to like your friends. So I kept it and then I just gave it to my friend anyway. (laughs) And he's a happiness coach, so he found it quite nice. 
he started a news show online called Nice News, and not many people watch it. But it was basically to divert from COVID news. It was about nice news and how to keep people upbeat. And I did actually feature on it a couple of times on Zoom. So that was quite fun. Mayen shares with us how her new neighbours were able to feel a little more at home. Just, our neighbours just moved in from Poland and they had just literally come to Singapore and then the lockdown happened. So coming here and locking down, they were like, I don't even know this country at all. So like we would go and get like local food for them and then we would give it to them across the balcony and then they would chat a bit and they would ask us like a bit more about Singapore. So that was nice. The full story, however, is never this simple. Heroes can very quickly turn into villains, and where on one side you may find the goodness in our actions, on the other, you'll probably find the ugly, the worst in us. In the panic and chaos of these uncertain times, maybe we weren't the heroes we hoped we would be. Yeah, I think it all started off with lack of community, with the whole uh, panic buying hoarding, and I was just like, it just annoys me. I, think it's, I don't know. I just get annoyed. The The whole panic buying stuff was just absolutely ridiculous. It just showed you, like, just humanity and what we can be like in certain times, like, you sort of do for self kind of thing. Um, you know, when everyone's kind of in need, you see all these videos of people crying that they can't buy nappies for their kids and all that kind of stuff. So that was really, like, a, a crazy, a crazy thing. What COVID really proved to me, I think, is that this whole, this idea in Britain like, you know, the kind of war mythology that, like, we will put down aside our differences and sacrifice our concerns for the good of the nation is, like, a little bit of a myth, I think, really. Um, um, I think that the angle, like, you know, in the way in the government spoke about people coming together and stuff, it just really didn't match the actions, like, in reality. Because um, I, I saw people, you know, not sacrificing things, people spending way too much time outside and like not distancing at all. Um, and I'm not talking about like people that are living in tiny uh, flats in estates that are desperately looking for like a bit of greenery. I mean, like obviously wealthy people traveling all around the world, not quarantining um, people who bemoaning the fact that they're, you know, stuff like shopping is closed down, which I mean, is bizarre to me, people that were desperate to get back into Primark like as soon as it opened. And then also like panic buying and like people being really aggressive in supermarkets trying to get items. Because I remember seeing so many images of people stockpiling and showing extremely greedy behavior and leaving vulnerable people with very little food to buy or resources um and i think i don't want to look too much on the quarantine experience if you can call it that um as one of just the world coming together and you know experiencing these crazy times together because i think we still saw a lot of the worst of what people can do um which is hoarding and greed uh, at the expense of extremely vulnerable people as highlighted to us by 2020, heroism and villainy too often lie side by side, coexisting with one another in a way that can both raise our spirits and destroy them. After a year like this one, it seems like the humanity in us was put to the test. 
Too many lost the very things, the very people they cherished as their own personal heroes. Sometimes, heroes aren't found in acts of charity or politics or collective community action, but rather in those right in front of us. Isabella and her grandfather, Valentino, were incredibly close. This year, Valentino passed away due to COVID-19, leaving Isabella and her family to deal with an unimaginable loss. This was right before the second wave kicked in, so at the start of September. Um, And so I always knew that if my grandfather caught the virus, then it wouldn't be good. And I remember being in London and then he was recovering. So I thought, oh my God, it's going to be okay. My flatmate was really supportive. And then I remember my dad called me and said, you know, you need to come home because it's not looking good. And I feel like it's, it's a big trauma because you're not just going through the fact that someone's died. You're going through the fact that you can't have that many people at a funeral. You can't see them. You can't have a wake. You can't up to 15 people. Um, but it's it's still not the same, although I don't think having a big thing would have felt right anyway. Isabella goes on to share the special bond she had with her grandfather. We were very close. He was like my best friend. Um, so I we wouldn't talk all the time on the phone, but I would say hi to him when I, whenever I was on the phone to my grandmother. That was most nights, to be honest. Um, and because he was from Italy and I feel very Italian, I'm very, we, we took a trip there together last year and we went to a wedding, mm. a family wedding, which was really nice. So I have many nice memories of my grandfather. We actually worked together in my family's restaurant when I was younger. Um, he was like the restaurant manager. So when I was old enough, when I was around 15, I started working in the restaurant. And after service every weekend, we would sit sit together, have a drink, talk about... He was very intelligent, so we would talk about politics, we would talk about languages. I I just remember every Saturday night, I would always want to go out, especially when I was 17, but I was working. And so, yeah, I just remember him always giving me a drink, like, do you want a drink? What do you want? Limoncello? Amaretto? Um, and he would have a Peroni all the time. Um, so it would just be a it would just be a nice end to the evening. Sometimes I'd get a takeaway and then he'd drive me home to my parents' house, just me and him. Um, and it would just be a nice end to the week. But sometimes, even when our heroes leave us, we find ways to carry them with us. After her grandfather's passing, Isabella changed her middle name to Valentino in honor of her best friend. And as we navigate this loss, this pain, this journey of hardship and challenges, as we become disappointed in and disillusioned by the behavior of our governments and those who enable them, the behavior of each other and those around us, we're forced to let go of the fallacy that someone will come in to save the day. When we asked Sodoma who her personal hero was, this is what she told us. You know what, I'm gonna say myself. I, and here, here's the reason why, I, I, you guys know, I struggle with my mental health, I have a diagnosed clinical disorder, um, and being in quarantine is not great for things like that, and 
I think that while I am right now, because I'm currently un unmedicated and also I'm not seeing my therapist, I really had to rely on some of the past <laughs> things that I've learned in therapy to like push through and, and, and rely on myself in ways that I haven't had to before. Um, and so I'm gonna toot my own horn here and say that I am proud of myself for, you know, getting through, even though it hasn't always been easy, I will say there have been days, but we're here, you know? <laughs> And that's, I'm, I, that's my statement. We find ourselves, somehow, still here. Grateful for how 2020 showed us everything that we are capable of, but forlorn by how much horror that that also includes. We saw that when faced with the worst, there will still be some that think of others, even when so many seem to only think of themselves. In this adventure we were living, we learned that our villains hoard toilet paper, scream stop the vote, say taking a knee is an empty gesture yet assume symbolic claps are enough to heal a nation. Our heroes buy our groceries, brave the front lines armed in PPE, live within us or live on, carried in the middle name of a grandchild. Our heroes wear three-piece neon suits, dipped head to toe in color, wandering in and out of our gaze. If heroism and villainy are two inevitable sides of the same coin, then perhaps it seems somewhat fitting that this year had both those sides too. Join us next week for our final episode before we head into 2021. Thanks for listening. We Know the End is presented, produced, and edited by us and brought to you by Beaver Sound. Intro music by Vagar Dreyer and outro music by Brooklyn Han. Logo designed by Ellie Reeves. Music contributions from Free Music Archive, featuring Blue Dot Sessions and Hall of the Mountain King, performed by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. A special thanks to Adoma Ado, Alice Norga, Alia Mormont, Charlotte Lynch, Dylan Stevens, Eleanor Gentilini, Ellie Reeves, Felipa Campos Ferreira, Grace Chapman, Isabella Valentino Abid, Lucy Knight, Mayen Chow, Shemilore Olujimi, Susan Odele, Toby Abraham Silas, and Yasmina O'Sullivan for sharing their lovely stories.